Australians have collectively reached for the remote and turned down the volume on Canberra's noise. This is it. This is as thick as it gets. You're stark raving mad. Got anyone asking questions here? What is happening to mainstream media? You are fake news. Well, I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. I have never had more fun in my life. This is Represent. 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 On Nation. Good afternoon, you're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. I'm Claudia. I'm Maggie. And I'm Zizi. Um, on today's show, we'll be covering a number of topics. Firstly, the Syrian airstrike, the most dramatic news event this week, which happened today. Um, also, China's increasing influence in Vanuatu, including uh, potentially building a new military base there. And Mark Zuckerberg's um, testifying due to the Facebook scandal about Cambridge Analytica in Congress. And, of course, we'll be having Head to Head, where we'll talk about unlucky numbers for politicians. Is it news polls or empty ambassador positions? Today we were talking about the uh, Syrian um, missile airstrikes that um, have happened today after a week of build-up to that. Um, So, yeah, it's been a complicated issue and for a long time, due to the mixed signals sent by Donald Trump, um, people have not been sure of what was going to occur, but now it seems like today um, there's been a joint effort from US, the UK and France, and they've targeted a research centre in Damascus, along with a chemical weapons storage facility and a command post west of Homs. Um, Supposedly the aim of this strike is to send a message um, about um, Assad's use of chemical weapons, um, similar to the one that was done last year to discourage the use of sarin gas, which has sort of decreased in use, but there has been another attack uh, in Douma this week, and so this is sort of seen as a, a punishment or a sort of consequence of that. Yeah, so um, this has also uh, dug up a lot of tensions with Russia, and Russia sees this as sort of a provocation. Um, And so I guess the question is opening up is, A, will this strike really have any meaningful impact? Um, And, like, will it achieve the sort of ends that the US is trying to achieve with this? Like, obviously, uh, similar strikes have been done in the past and have not had the impact of ending chemical attacks and secondly like will this escalate tensions between the US and Russia and will this blow this up into a larger problem? Well I, I th- I've come to co- see this action as quite a powerful sim- signal to the Assad government that the use of chemical weapons is quite inappropriate. Of course we had this as the use of chemical weapons as the famous red line during Obama's um, White House tenure um, and it, he was seen to not actually, you know, take action against uh, the Assad regime when there was use of chemical weapons, and it kind of delegitimized America as a as a participant in this conflict. That they were willing to make these moralistic stands and then not actually back them up with action. Trump, while I think has not quite been able to, you know, stop the chemical attacks, he has shown that there are serious repercussions for when the government does employ them, and that America is watching what's happening in Syria which I think the Syrian people started to forget. Like, for a very long period of time, under Obama, you know, they would have these atrocious attacks using, you know, sarin gas and other chemical weapons, and nothing would happen. And the world would be looking to the US to take action, and they wouldn't. So I I think this is a signal that the US is looking to Syria as a serious place to, you know, show the world that they are watching and paying attention. I'm just worried about, like if they're able to follow through and actually create a difference on the ground. Mm. Yeah, I agree that um, 
you know, it's sort of important to send that message regardless of whether it'll create the impact that you might want of actually, you know, stopping further attacks from happening. Um, I think it's really important how this time, I believe, like um, Claudia mentioned, that it's a joint effort between three nations, so it doesn't really feel like it's the US sort of declaring an act of war or there's like very little chance of it being misconstrued that way. Um, Something else that I think is really interesting is that you know, Russia is saying that we want to retaliate, and I feel like that's possibly why um, it took a little bit longer this time to actually carry out the missile attack. I believe Donald Trump was tweeting um, quite soon after the incidents uh, broke out about how the chemical attack allegedly conducted by the Syrian government was sort of brought to air. He was like, there will be action taken within 24 to 48 hours. Nothing, no action was taken, but that was actually a good thing because they had more time to prepare um, sort of an action that is more appropriate. And I feel like they did manage to do that by making it a very targeted attack towards the specific facilities and sort of reiterating that it's because they have a problem with the use of chemical weapons rather than, you know, having it be some sort of threatening or sort of like trying to get involved in the war, so to speak. I think in a really weird way, Trump actually has a lot more freedom than Obama did to actually retaliate when it comes to chemical weapons. And that's because they're, the war is kind of over. It, it, like Obviously, it's not because there's still uh, quite a lot of conflict on the ground. But there's no serious contender against the Assad government. Um, when Obama was in power, ISIS was still like a legitimate force. Though it still had you know quite large areas of ground that they controlled and territories that they controlled. And they were a serious threat to the Assad regime. And any attacks or condemnation of Assad and his government would be seen as tipping the balance to perhaps towards well, ISIS, towards yeah, ISIS, right. which were obviously a, a, quite a threat at that time. Now that ISIS is quite like has been defeated, and there's only a few rebel strongholds, actions which violate human rights can actually be retaliated against in a weird way because it's not actually going to tip the balance of the war. Um, it's this very dark situation where you can actually take action against the bad guys because they're not going to be replaced by another person. Yeah, right. um, and I think Theresa May came out and said that they weren't interested in regime change and that wasn't the aim here. So they're sort of sending that really clear message that like they may not support Assad in any way, but this is not aimed at trying to depose him. Yeah, which makes these like military attacks seem like a slap on the hand. Um, yeah, I which mean, is that kind of sad. is what it's a bit like, right? Because, like, they had plenty of notice to move people out of the area and so on. So, obviously, it's... I don't know. I, I'm no expert on it, but it feels a bit toothless to me. Mm. But, um, yeah, I guess we'll see what the, like, wider consequences of it will be. I think it's an important signal, maybe not militarily. I don't think these sound like extraordinarily secure um, strategic lo- um, hits. But what it does show that, like the world will not stand by while you commit acts of human rights and war crimes. Um, therefore, you should know that your actions are being monitored and, you know, the US, Britain and France will take action against you. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, the Russian ambassador Vasily Nevenzia has apparently come out and said that there was actually no chemical weapons attack in Duma, um, which is, I think, uh, quite hilarious well not I mean it's too dark to be hilarious but it's uh, such a ridiculous claim to make since that like it seems quite obvious that um you know Macron came out and said he had concrete evidence that there was a chemical weapons attack and like people have been in and gone and investigated the victims already Mm -hmm. um but yeah it just shows I guess this is going to have like 
more widespread diplomatic consequences. Well, Russia has long claimed that, you know, evidence of chemical weapons has been fabricated as part of a you know, Western plot against the Assad regime. Russia has always kind of contended that, you know, any claims of chemical weapons were either used by rebel forces, um, which are largely unsubstantiated, or that the evidence has been faked. Um, and I believe there's a the Nobel Prize winning group, the the White Helmets, who kind of document and are on the ground recording these events, uh, Russia has claimed that they are actually like US agents or like foreign agents trying to discredit the government and fake all these horrific attacks. So, you know, yeah, it is quite in line with Russia's diplomatic strategy to delegitimize any claims of, you know, impropriety on behalf of the Assad government, which, you know, has is very clearly part of these attacks and you know, has a history of human rights abuses that should not be ignored. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's um, going to be interesting to see, I guess, even, obviously, like, you've made the point that um, it's an important thing to do just to make a statement to, I guess, the public, if not really to Assad, like, whether chemical, um, like, the use of chemical weapons will go down as a response, because apparently when they bombed, um, I can't remember the name of the place they bombed last year, um, the use of sarin gas has temporarily kind of stopped not none of the other chemical weapons but at least that so um yeah i wonder if there'll be a similar sort of actual impact at all or just that diplomatic one mm. it's but we should also be mindful that uh chemical weapons while that is a red line in the u.s foreign policy it's not by any means the last war crime that has been committed by the assad regime yeah. i mean they're very clearly targeting civilian areas with high levels of civilian population there's reports of them targeting journalists and young people in hospitals like this is quite an atrocious war and there's quite a few victims yeah yeah i don't know if we mentioned earlier um the un has effectively given up on trying to count the amount of deaths that have occurred in syria um just because it's you know such a large quantity and like a comprehensive count is impossible so that's yeah it's really scary to think about like the situation has just become something that no one's really interested in measuring anymore that like you know in in these things as well we take uh, the u.s's word for it and various people's word for various things that this is how many people died or this is what was used or this is who was affected but at this point like no one's actually really looking for the facts anymore Mm. Well, I think just because the origins of the Syrian war as being like a civil war that kind of turned very, very political and very violent with the rise of, you know, uh, ISIS as the big bad, it kind of made Assad, who was an autocrat and a dictator, seem like the relative good guy. And now we're stuck in this position where the person who we secretly wanted to win the war is winning the war and doing so with quite a lot of impunity. Yeah. Mm. It's difficult conversations, but as always, we'd love to hear what you guys think. So don't forget to send us a tweet at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook at SinRepresent. We're now going to move to a story that's a little closer to our home. This is a story about China's um, alleged uh, agreement with Vanuatu to build a permanent military presence in the South Pacific. This story has got a lot of uh, foreign diplomats in Australia very worried about you know, China's influence in our region. And I guess the what is seen as a move to militarise what is considered Australia's, you know, security backyard. Um, what have you guys thought of this story? 
Yeah, well, I guess it's a. This is the second. Am I right in saying it's the second military base that um, China's built overseas? The first one being in Djibouti. Um, and I read a little bit about when they were building the first base. Um, they were saying that you know this is the only one we're doing. Like, why is everyone? you know, making such a big deal about it, and obviously now they're doing another one, so it seems to be part of sort of an expansionist strategy. Um, I think it's come along with quite a lot of infrastructure building um, on the part of the Chinese government, so I think they're rebuilding the wharf, um, they're rebuilding the Prime Minister's house, apparently, and some governmental buildings, um, and just investing really heavily in Vanuatu, um, so it appears that they will probably be using the wharf and some of that infrastructure for their own uh, military ends as well, so it's sort of like a win-win on that count. Um, I have to say I'm a little confused as to why this is a a troubling thing. Um, Seems like a win-win for both parties to me. I understand that Australia doesn't like China encroaching too much in the sort of area that we like to feel dominant in, but, I mean, it's not like we're doing those projects for Vanuatu, so someone should. I think it's quite interesting what you mentioned is, like, what might be seen as a double standard on behalf of China, because Australia has had a very uh, strong military presence in the Pacific. We routinely do uh, military uh, patrols, naval patrols in the area, and we do partner with a lot of uh, local Pacific Islands uh, nations as part of like a joint security effort. Um, but I think that's exactly the point. Like Vanuatu seems to have. Uh, wavered in its allegiance I guess as a sole security partner with Australia and the US and it's starting to look at China Uh, I think what is also interesting is what you mentioned that China is not claiming that it is a military base um, and in official statements neither has Australia but a lot of people are looking at this as like a very clear signal that this could potentially be a new Chinese base in the Pacific Um, you mentioned Djibouti when China launched their military base there, they actually didn't say that it was a military base. They said it was an anti-piracy oh, really? uh, strat- strategy. Yeah, That's so interesting. So they kind I of wonder if they caught any pirates <laughs> in the midst of their military strategy. I mean, they probably did, but the point of the matter is like, China does try and advertise itself as a uh, kind of a service the to the local area, and of course then they set up a military base. Yeah, right. But I mean, that's just business, isn't it? Like, I didn't, maybe I don't fully understand the dynamic, but like, um, I spent a bit of time in Ethiopia where they were building the big railway that um, went from the Djibouti military base, but it went all the way through Ethiopia as well. And that's like caused a huge economic boom for that country because like they're able to actually transport goods and have like freight and people can move more easily. It's like the, other than the big capital, like secondary cities are booming because of that now. So it's like, there's genuine benefits. Like obviously there's always a price but that's that's just business isn't it like yeah I feel like it's to me it doesn't trouble me at all but maybe I'm missing like a key element of what's threatening about it well I think that's an interesting part of like how China does do diplomacy they they don't necessarily have allies or security partnerships or diplomatic ties like we in Australia do they don't have their equivalent of ANZUS or whatever what they do is they create trade relationships and service relationships which make the local economy kind of reliant on their presence um, Reliant makes it sound insidious, but it's actually more like a partnership. So China will invest heavily in Vanuatu. They'll upgrade their airport, upgrade their wharf, you know, upgrade their governmental institutions, like the foreign department I think you mentioned. Mm. Um, but that comes with an implicit agreement that now China's warships can dock in your wharf, um, or at least that's what is rumoured to be ne- being negotiated right now. Mm. I think. 
Yeah, sorry. I think like part of the reason why people are more worried or suspicious of China compared to if it was Australia doing the same thing, I think is just purely because of how opaque it is when China carries out something like, um, you know, giving out aid or um, projects like this. Because unlike the Western standards of like very transparent sort of things happening, China tends to be a bit more opaque. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. It's just we don't really know what's going on from the outside, so we. Can't really help yeah, right, being、I、more、see. suspicious about、yeah. it, but I suppose it's like, on the other hand, like we can't forget the agency of these countries. They're not like saying, you like China's not being like, take this aid, you must. It's compulsory. They're actually accepting, and it's yeah, like Zizi said, a partnership that they've both parties have agreed to. That being said, it's a partnership with very.、Uh, Different、varying. dynamics of power. Exactly.、True. So currently, China reportedly owns about half of Vanuatu's forty-four million dollars of foreign debt. That's a lot of money to be beholden to one nation, especially when they are investing so heavily in your governmental institutions. There is, like, as an outsider, it does seem like a bit like there is some implicit strings attached. That is normally quite openly disclosed. So Australia, we have security partnerships and we have documents that we look to, saying this is why we work with Vanuatu, this is why we work with Fiji, or, or Papua New Guinea. However, when China negotiates, China negotiates in we've bought a train line,、um, and this will service our naval base. Yeah. <laughs> and that seems more transactional and I guess more business-minded, but that also comes with some questions over like. What is the depth of this relationship? What does this mean, and what other areas does this connect to in terms of like how China works with them? I mean, it's. I mean, we could also look at how Vanuatu has started, kind of closing Taiwanese trade offices、um, and relationships、mm. with Taiwan and its local government institutions, as China invests more and more into its regional economy. I mean, this does seem like Vanuatu is selling its. Allegiance to Taiwan. Yeah, totally. Well, like I think wasn't there something as well that like Vanuatu was one of the only Pacific countries that、uh, voted in favour of what China was doing in the South China Sea. Like, which is quite interesting to see, like one really small country going out <laughs> like so far from what all its neighbours are doing.、Mm. I think yeah, there is this fear that you know when China builds you a train, that means when you're discussing the South China Sea, you have to vote with. Their position, which is a bit more worrying when it comes to international diplomacy, which is why I think people are inherently more suspicious of foreign, of、uh, Chinese foreign relationships, because they do seem a bit more transactional and, as Maggie said, opaque. Yeah, right. I guess they're not exactly trading like for like, like you would in a regular deal of this kind, where you're trading military allegiance for military allegiance. Like they're sort of trading a few different things on a few different levels, in ways that makes it with, sort of with hard to dismantle. With partners who are in a very different position to what China is, this is the second largest economy in the world. It's very hard to negotiate、yeah. on equal footing. No, of course. And China, I think, really does use that leverage,、um, often investing quite heavily in countries that may not be able to pay back those debts as their economy is currently structured. Like Vanuatu having a forty-four, it's four hundred forty million dollar foreign debt. Yeah, I mean, do、huge. we know why they have such an enormous debt? Well, they're a developing nation,、yeah. so there's a lot of、um, overhead in there. Yeah, the、right. government operates, but yeah. Yeah,、well. actually, I'm realizing I think I misinterpreted a bit more earlier. I thought that,、um, you know, when you when China was giving Vanuatu aid, it was actually just 
giving it to them. But now that I'm actually reading it a bit further, they're essentially lending the money. Is that correct? Oh, so that is that, scary. Yeah, that's really interesting that they're going to be lending money to be building in that case, like an official residence for the prime minister. That's going to cost like millions of dollars. That's you know, like, where's the focus? It just now yeah, it seems a I bit mean, more insidious to me that that definitely seems like not like a project that's going to pay itself back either. Like, I guess you could argue debt. that, like, you know, lending someone money to build like a mega wharf or whatever will probably pay itself back at least to some point because the economy will really benefit from that. But yeah, like building someone's presidential dwellings. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah, I mean, this is how China operates. China doesn't give aid; they give you know, trade relationships, they invest in the economy, they set up businesses that are state-owned enterprises in those areas. I mean, uh, this looks very textbook on how China operates on an international stage. You could also look to the fact that um, quite a bizarre fact is that the African Union headquarters is actually built by China. It was heavily invested in China. And that is seen as like a way for China to buy influence in a region that it has very little relationship to. Yeah, right. Although I think it's really interesting in terms of Africa that, like, I've read a lot of analysis of this as saying, well, yes, China does have this really outsized influence on a lot of African nations now and is obviously trying to carry its favour there, but, like, no one else is doing it. Like, Australia has really made no effort to build diplomatic connections with, um, like, pretty much any African nations and, like, the US really neglects it as well. So it's like, well, someone... Has to invest there. Has to invest there. So if it's China, like, if you don't want it to be China, you should invest there. Like, I think also China has a very appealing story to other developing nations because China is a major economy that has turned its favours around very quickly. I mean, it was only in 1989 that it opened itself up to international trade. And from there, it's turned into a global powerhouse. I think that's a very appealing story to a nation that's also seeking to, you know, develop its economy and seek riches for its people. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. Which is why I think um, a lot of developing nations do look to China for investment. However, there is that insidious kind of, what does this come, what does this mean when China wants to bring a vote to the UN? Are you voting based off your government's policy and your people's best interests? Or is it to maintain Chinese investment in your nation? I think that's where, I guess, especially Australia starts to get very nervous when China is looking to the South Pacific, which we kind of see as our, perhaps wrongly, as our backyard. Um, Australia does have a bit of a history of being, seeing itself as the protectorate of the South Pacific. And when we see China kind of investing heavily, we're like, "Uh, China, what are you doing there? (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I like I, I think I understand what's really suspect about it on a lot of levels, but I guess I just kind of feel like, well, they have a wolf now. Like, you know, we didn't do that for them. So if I was living in Vanuatu and suddenly, like, we had all these new benefits, I would be really glad that my government had signed up to that. Like, I guess the debt thing is a different question because it could end up much worse. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually just looking up some case studies while you guys were chatting about in the past like how China has handled debt and there are some instances where it is a bit problematic to say the least so for example in Sri Lanka um, their second largest airport was helped um, financed by China and um, it was designed to handle about a million passengers per year but in reality it only gets about 
a dozen passengers per day, and more money, I quote, has been <laughs> made from renting out the unused cargo terminal terminals for rice storage than from flight related activities. <laughs> oh my god, which is crazy, right? And yeah. then um, with that, there has um, so the. The annual revenues are roughly three hundred million, but it must repay China twenty three point six million a year for the next eight years in order to essentially pay back what、um, they borrowed for creating that airport, which is essentially quite useless for them. And to help relieve its debt crisis, Sri Lanka has、um, agreed to give China control of the deepwater port. Um, in exchange for writing off 1.1 billion of the island's debt, so there has been historical cases of.、Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it's not like they're just deliberately sending them into debt to milk them for it later, but they're deliberately hoping that they can write it off later for more influence. Yeah, and, and I think we can see this as a strategy that's also kind of financing the One Belt One Road policy. I, I don't know if you guys have been following this, but China's making a huge infrastructural investment in its neighboring regions on the、um, Asian, actually, landmass, and so it's investing heavily in areas like Pakistan and Mongolia、um, and the Kazakhstan and other stans.、Oh. Um, and a lot of people are looking at the projects that they're actually investing in and saying, well. Uh, the Pakistani government is building a train line that is empirically good, but is this the best train line for its people?、Mm. And they're looking at the train line and they're like, "Well, it only goes to a couple regional centres. This looks like a train line for China、yeah. and not for Pakistan." You know, so China does create contingencies on what it invests in, and those might not might not be the projects that are best for the people that are actually living there. Mm. Mm. No, totally. I think I read about the、um, Ethiopian train line that they have. Um, on board things to make noodles and green tea, which I think is really funny <laughs> because, like, I mean, it's so obvious for Chinese workers coming over as opposed to like local Ethiopians to use.、Um, but yeah, I think、uh, I just looked up that the Belt and Road Initiative is one trillion dollars of infrastructure, which is crazy. That's so much money.、Wow. Mm. That's crazy. And、uh, and a lot of them are on questionable projects that might not have as best a benefit to the local people. And I mean, it's still investment, but if it is it. Benefiting, like if it is it giving X benefit to China and Y benefit to the people, and what is larger?、Mm, it's a murky issue for sure. So the next topic that we're going to be moving on to is Mark Zuckerberg、um, testifying in front of Congress earlier this week. So this was in light of the Cambridge Analytica scandal that we've talked about earlier in the show. Before we jump right into it, I'll play a little bit of a clip of him in Congress. Uh, was your data included in the data sold to the malicious third parties? Your personal data. Yes. It was. Are you willing to change your business model in the interest of protecting individual privacy? Congresswoman, we are, have made and are continuing to make changes to reduce the amount of. No. Are you willing to change your business model in the interest of protecting individual privacy? Congresswoman, I'm not sure what that means. Well, I'll follow up with you on it. Awesome. So that was a clip of、um, a congresswoman from California grilling Zuckerberg a little bit about essentially、uh, whether his data was taken and sort of shared with Cambridge Analytica, and it was, and also what he's going to be doing afterwards. So, initial thoughts, guys. Oh my! When I saw that clip, a little part of me was like, he. 
very clearly knows that he's not going to stop sharing our personal data for profit. That's basically Facebook's whole business model. But he can't say that in Congress because, (laughs) you know, Facebook wouldn't... If we look behind the veneer of Facebook, it is just a data collection app. um, And it's probably one of the best data collection apps out there. And the fact of the matter is they aren't going to change their business model because why? (laughs) Why would you? I think there was an old statistic, it's probably quite out of date now, that each user uh, makes for Facebook $10 just by selling their data. Um, That's that's crazy. And if you think about how many billion people are on Facebook, that is a lot of... I would have expected it to be like two cents per person or something. Wow, $10. Yeah. That data is valuable. It's their whole business model, and they're not going to change it anytime soon. That being said, the company has said it's going to crack down on the data available to third-party developers, and it's going to investigate every app that has previously accessed very large amounts of data. What that basically means is that Facebook is going to stop apps being able to access your friends list, but they're still going to be able to access all your data. So it's basically saying they're allowed to steal your data, but not your friend's data, unless they give their personal consent. Which I think is why people are so up in arms about the Cambridge Analytica story, is because it wasn't just the people that did the personality quiz, it's all their friends, all the people that they're connected to. Sure, and when you look at the figures of the difference between the people who actually did the quiz and those who would like just sort of peripherally connected, you can understand that outrage kind of because... Like, it was the peripheral people that really made the money, not the people who made the choice. Um, mm. Did we have some statistics Yeah, so I- in Australia, actually, there was only 58 Australians who actually took the quiz, uh, This Is Your Digital Life, which is the one used by Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. And from those 53 Australians using the data, more than 310... Sorry, 310,000 Australians had their data compromised. Wow. Um, which is shows you kind of the scale. Obviously, it's not just those 53 people. That would be a very popular 53 people. We're talking about people who are friends in America who did the quiz because the vast majority of the people who did the quiz were Americans. Anyone who had friends with anyone who did the quiz would have been exposed. But in terms of like its domestic reach... Just having 53 people in Australia compromised a very large proportion of the population. I think it's there's an even funnier statistic where New Zealand, <laughs> um, just 10 New Zealanders did the quiz and the entire country, and yet 64,000 uh, New Zealanders' accounts were swept up in the Cambridge Analytica data set. So it does show you kind of like, you know, every single person is just like a tiny point in a huge web of connections that data is that Facebook is able to exploit in terms of its data reach. Yeah, although given that, you can think that maybe what uh, Zuckerberg's at least conceding to doing now mm. is quite a big step then, because that's a whole lot of money that they're passing up on if they're not allowing third-party applications to do these things anymore. Well, I think the third-party would have paid an X amount to gain access to your data. Mm. Is just whether or not Facebook is allowing that to include your friends list and you know what your friends data which is basically what they're exploiting that facebook wasn't actually didn't actually care how many people you gained access to just as long as you paid for that access of course but i just imagine that people would be less willing to pay um for you know individual people's data if they knew that the friends list data was not part of that package anymore 
So you think it would Facebook will still potentially take a hit for doing this. Mm-hmm. But I think it's been really interesting to see how Zuckerberg's tactics have really seemed to change recently in that like it seems to be a lot less about um, like obvious advertising and like he came out like at the start of this year with his new strategy saying they're deprioritizing businesses, business pages and so on, which on the face of it you're like, Oh, that sounds great, like you know, they're letting us see more content from our friends and our groups and so on, but it just shows the extent to which, like, it's not about direct advertising anymore. It's just about watching your actual personal information. Well, that's not actually true. If you're a if you're a business profile and you want to get your message out there, um, you used to be able to rely on, you know, your organic reach, which is basically the fact that if you post something out there, all the people who follow you will probably see it at some time in their newsfeed. When Facebook announces that they're going to be deprioritizing business and increasing the amount of personal interactions you have, it basically means that each business profile now has to pay to make sure that the algorithm shows their content. I see. Hmm, So you think they'll still show just as much paid advertising? It's just they'll show less organic ones? It, it, It basically means if, say, like, BuzzFeed wants one of their articles to be seen, they can't rely on the fact that BuzzFeed has, you know, X thousand followers. They have to rely on the fact that that article has been boosted for, say, like $50 to get, you know, an audience of a certain amount of people. It's actually a... When when Facebook announces that it's going to, you know, let the user see more of their friends' posts, what they mean is businesses cough up you know publishers and right which is why a lot of news companies have gotten really annoyed at facebook they are starting to get really tired of having to pay for their news to get out because they're classified as a business account they're a a professional profile Mm. that's so interesting how it just really goes to show how much power facebook has and essentially i mean in destabilizing to a large extent traditional media and how that works and just like at a whim or i assume they thought about it for a long time but at their whim suddenly a lot of business models of news corporations could just be jeopardized to that extent exactly which is the worrying amount of faith we put in facebook to be you know good and when we see stories like this we're like oh wow (laughs) yeah although um i think we've read that uh since he's testified in front of congress the shares have gone back up 4.5 percent so i think the trust in facebook and Big Mark Zuckerberg is still reasonably strong with the public, apparently. Well, I, I think he did arguably a good job in in Congress. Um, he sort of, <laughs> some people describe that he sort of acted more as a tech support role towards some of the questions being, oh, yeah. um, you know, brought to him. Like, how can I, like, do this, this, this? And he'll be like, well, there's already an option to do this. You actually just have to, do, you know, click this, click this and make sure that it works. But of course, there were also like really pointed questions about exactly how Facebook can be regulated better better in the future. But I believe by the end of it, there still hasn't really been a specific strategy because it's just such a new field and people just have no idea how regulation would actually look like in practice. I think when it comes to looking at the share price, it's probably a bad barometer in terms of like our public faith in Facebook. Uh, I mean, a jump of 4.5% to me sounds like people who invest and people who have money to invest know that Facebook isn't going to change its practices. It isn't going to take a huge economic hit from this Cambridge Analytica story. Um, and it's looking at the data that not that many people are actually cha- changing their their privacy settings because Facebook does make it difficult for you to actually yeah. change everything. They hide it away and there's a lot of like, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know. Mm. 
I yeah. think it's really interesting because there seemed to be uh, a bit of a wave, at least on from what I could observe on the internet, of people leaving Facebook and people sort of making a big deal out of withdrawing from a lot of social media like a couple of weeks ago. That seems to have died down quite a bit. Very much so. Um, but yeah, I guess that's more what I mean and just in terms of like, I think people have sort of recognised how not feasible it is for people to really boycott Facebook even if they want to. Mm. So mm. there's no real impetus for Facebook to change. Yeah, which I think is why the business community is saying this is a viable model. Yes, it has, has its hit, but the consumers aren't changing their behaviour. The consumers aren't changing their privacy settings or you know, making sure that these kind of things aren't happening again. And Zuckerberg's testimony right there, he didn't make any claim to actually change any of the business models. Mm. So why should businesses not invest in Facebook or continue to do so? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that really freaks me out actually is just like, how we don't really know whether Facebook is doing things that they're not disclosing that they do as well. Like, there's a certain amount of things that you can, like, go and see what their ad settings are for you. You can download all your own data and see everything that they've saved. But, like, there's no guarantee that they're even showing you everything that they have anyway because, like, it's so unlikely that this stuff gets leaked. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think other than that, something that um, a lot of people had problem with is that if you're even not... If you're not a user of Facebook... Facebook still is able to track some of your data. Yeah. So that's really scary to think about. Well, this is an issue that's kind of been around for a long time. The EU actually fined Facebook a very large amount of money because they had been created what was being called like ghost profiles. Basically, whenever you, if you do not have a Facebook account and you log on to a site which has Facebook embedded into it, it could be a like or a share function. It could be anything that basically Facebook is present on the web page, which is most news articles um, and quite a few sites. If Facebook is present, they're able to digitally map who you are Mm. from that. And they're also able to uh, match that up with your friends who do have a profile and who are present on Facebook Mm. to create like a digital portfolio about you without you ever consenting to be on their site. Yeah, that's insane. It's just like there's nothing... The whole, like, the fact that this whole issue has been framed around consent sort of just seems so ridiculous when you think about it that way. Like, there is no real consent when you don't actually have the option. Mm Mm-hmm. And I suppose something interesting to bring up in a bit of a throwback that was also mentioned in Congress is actually pre-Facebook, Zuckerberg was involved in creating essentially Face Mash. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. Where basically he scraped data from Harvard to get pictures of his, um, you know, uh, people that studied there and then put two people next to each other, like, one it's like girl, hot or another not, girl. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's hotter out of those two? So it's kind of ironic that he's being like, Facebook is about commu- like creating a community. <laughs> when before that, he was scraping data from, you know, mm. illegally essentially. Yeah, totally. And it was face face. Is it face match or face mash? Mash. I yeah, think. that site became Facebook as mm. well. Like it's not even like that was a project and then he grew up. It's like that was Facebook originally. Which yeah. is so weird. He's tried to claim differently, but yeah. I feel like a lot of people... Well, I mean, I, to mm. be, like, I'm basing my impression of that from the movie The Social Network. So, you know, <laughs> um, truth in fiction, maybe, but also maybe not. There's also like been a history of Facebook scandals where Facebook has illegitimately done experiments on you know, the Facebook community. There was a scandal where they tried to alter users' emotions by showing them different... <sighs> yes posts and then monitoring what their status updates would be and there was a huge concern that first of all 
emotional manipulation on a grand scale is probably something that Facebook should not be experimenting <laughs> in. Uh, that seems very dystopian. But also the fact that, you know, vulnerable people might have been caught up in the survey, people with mental health disorders, or young people, people under the age of 18, which, you know, if you're doing a researcher, you can't do experiments um, that manipulate the emotional states of people under the age of 18 without their parental consent, let alone their own consent. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also the additional concern that there's a lot of people who are under the age of 13 who are on Facebook, even though technically they're not meant to be, um, who also might have been caught up in the survey. So, you know, this is a long history of Facebook being quite, I don't know, uh, dodgy in their practices, and I guess we'll have to monitor to see if there's any changes. Um, Of course, we want to hear what you think. You can send us a tweet at at SinRepresent, or you can talk to us on Facebook at Facebook forward slash SinRepresent. We're going to go now to our famous segment. This is Head to Head on SinRepresent. That's right. This time we're going to be talking about unlucky numbers for politicians. So I'm sure a lot of you are aware that um, recently news poll came out with the 30th consecutive loss for Malcolm Turnbull. Um, hasn't really resulted in much substantial change. I think or there's been a lot say? of talk about the infamous yeah. number 30, but I don't know. I haven't seen anticlimactic. It has, it has, but there is definitely some rumblings. Uh, there has been. This could be a media media conduct. Um, conducted story where they're every time the 30 is mentioned they gulp to you know a viable candidate within the cabinet and go so do you want to be prime minister (laughs) the honorable scott morrison or peter dudden or whoever's name they seem to be throwing up um there was a bit of last week if you're on twitter there was a bit of a hubbub about a potential lib spell last monday where after one journalist did post that there was someone who was kind of counting the numbers for a potential Dutton challenge, a Dutton-Julie Bishop challenge, this never seemed to eventuate. And a lot of people kind of were presuming that it wasn't going to turn into anything because Dutton isn't seen to have much power in, um, have the numbers in the party. However, it is interesting that we're starting to have these kind of like lib spill rumours now that we've hit this 30th landmark. Yeah, I think it was funny that Turnbull came out and said that he regretted ever saying about Tony Abbott that the number 30 was significant. Now he's like, well, obviously that wasn't really what I meant by that. (laughs) Just he was bad. But um, yeah, I think it's, I think I, I get the impression that it's a little bit confected the whole like will there be another one thing from the media, especially because there was the Ipsos Fairfax poll that came out like Mm, I think a week and a half ago that said that like a vast majority of Australians want Turnbull to stay in the leadership role yeah um Mm -hmm. and that he's regained a lead over Shorten as well which is bizarre um at least judging by recent events you'd think that would not be what would occur but like yeah it doesn't seem like there's actually very much interest in a lip spill except from journalists who want a scandal (laughs) scandal, and obviously members of the Liberal Party who want to be Prime Minister (laughs) Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to tell, like, how much of it is hype. Well, I think we also need to look at, like, the makeup of what the political climates was. Last, when, when Tony Abbott was spilled, he was a very unpopular, much more unpopular in his polls. He wasn't, like, a neck and neck with um, Bill Shorten. He was very clearly um, losing quite badly. Um, and it was seemed to be centred around him 
as a leader as opposed to the party itself. Mm. Um, and now we're seeing much later on that the criticisms of Malcolm Turnbull seem to be about his party and he's kind of seen as the head of that party as opposed to, like, a personality that is leading it and shaping it. Yeah, totally. And it seems like a bit of a double bind this time compared to what it was like with Abbott because... Um, with Abbott, I guess, yeah, like you said, people saw the problem as being his personal flaws and they saw an alternative in Turnbull, whereas I think the main flaw that many people see with Turnbull is that he's been insufficiently strong in standing up to the right of his party and the alternative is the right of his party. Yeah. So, like, I think people who are dissatisfied with Turnbull don't necessarily see any more hope in swapping the leader out in this instance even if it's because of his personal the criticism seems to be of the party and its internal factions rather than the leader and their inability or ability to push certain policies yeah although i think a lot of people at least people who had a lot of faith in turnbull initially and thought he would be a different kind of liberal leader have i guess thought that he has failed to sort of whip the conservative side of his party into shape and like failed to just be strong in the face of opposition from that so I guess yeah it it just seems like people don't like the way he's responded to them but they don't like them either Mm. so maybe 30 not as much of an unlucky number for Turnbull as some people might have maybe we'll have to wait till 32 or 33 (laughs) (laughs) what are we pitching that against Susie the other unlucky number is of course in the US where there are still 45 US ambassador positions still vacant in the US State Department this is quite an That's alarming number, especially when we were talking about earlier about uh, China's diplomatic influence I- across the world. 45 empty positions in one of the highest foreign offices in the world is a very alarming statistic. There's apparently 32 nations without an American ambassador, and this includes quite critical partners like Saudi Arabia and Turkey and, well, South Korea, who is obviously, you know, at the centre of a very tense political situation with its neighbour to the north. Um, This is all because uh, last year Trump, uh, for breaking with tradition, ordered um, all of the former political appointees to leave their ambassadorships immediately as opposed to giving them time to resign or move away and find replacements. That just sounds like such a mean move. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Eddie, it's like, get out, get out of my house. Yeah, you just, just cleared the house. Yeah, it was yeah. quite dramatic. I just like um, don't really know this much about this issue. I was just wondering, like, why is he not appointing new people? Like, I get why he would just like bin all the Obama people straight away to make a point, but why is he taking so long to actually just like hire new people? Because you think he'd want to like shore up his own allies in all those positions? I presume it's got to do with two reasons. First of all, you need they need to be approved by the Senate. Um, or Congress, Congress actually. Uh, they need to be approved by um, another body of the government, which means you need to find sufficiently qualified and reasonable and politically appealing candidates to replace them. Um, and second of all, Trump isn't an internationalist. He's a very domestic politician. He's con- he's probably overwhelmed by not overwhelmed. He's probably um, concentrating his efforts on domestic issues you know, placing someone as the ambassador to Venezuela, while it is a good idea, is not the top of his priority list, Um, especially, you know, when he's declaring other issues is much more important. Right. So it's just like he's just deprioritized it. Yeah. I mean, he seems to have deprioritized the whole State Department. Um, And I guess 
this seems very unusual and counterintuitive if you are, you know, Australia and, you know, have been waiting for an ambassador for quite a few months before mm. someone was appointed. I think Australia only got its ambassador a few months ago. Mm. So as a major diplomatic partnership, that seems like a real missed yeah. opportunity. Like, uh, we should have been, well, we think we should have been top of the list. Yeah, totally. But it's just not a priority for this administration, I guess, and they don't seem to have much interest in foreign affairs. Hmm. Hmm. But yeah, curious to hear which you guys think is the worst sort of, um, you know, unlucky number. But that is all we have time for this week. We'll be back next week, 3 to 4 p.m. on Sin Nation and streaming online on sin.org.au. Stay tuned for We're Only Hour. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes by listening to our podcast on iTunes and Omni. And of course, you can send feedback to us through Twitter, Sin Represent, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Sin Represent. This show is produced by Zizi and Maggie. I'm Maggie. I'm Zizi. I'm Claudia. And remember to stay stay political. political.